everyone for joining another Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth podcast. We're delighted to have with us again today Michael Shertoff, who was the US um, Secretary of Homeland Security between 2005 and 2009, and since then has founded the Shertoff Group, a, a partnership of strategic advisors. Um, we are the topic of this podcast today is the on the first 100 days of Joe Biden. I think we'll kick off, Michael. First of all, thank you for joining us again. How have you been since we last spoke? And uh, I guess to start off with a general overview of the first 100 days of Biden from your perspective. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be on the podcast. Um, I've been well and uh, vaccinated now and um, began be, being able to enjoy going out a little bit more than when we were in the middle of the lockdown. And hopefully we see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of this well, it's been a very difficult year. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, um, the light emerging at the end of the tunnel coincides with Joe Biden's first 100 days. And obviously, when he came into office, he was very focused immediately on increasing the vaccination rate of Americans and working very hard to begin to push back against the challenges that we've had to face with the virus. He's been quite successful, I think, in making viruses, uh, the vaccinations more available. Um, and we're at a point now, I think we're approaching 50%, uh, if not beyond it, of people who've received at least one shot. Uh, the challenge now is not so much the amount of vaccine, um, but the willingness of people to be vaccinated. There is a, a non-trivial number of people who seem to resist vaccination, either because they're afraid of the side effects or somehow they don't believe the science. And that has a negative effect on the um, achievement of what they call herd immunity, which is the point at which the virus no longer has enough hosts to really continue to propagate itself. So that's gonna be a continuing challenge. But I think that the hope is um, that over the summer, we will achieve a plateau that will really allow a significant amount of, of reopening. Um, other than that, I think what uh, President Biden is focused on is uh, are the following things. I'm um, helping to recharge the economy, uh, including getting money in the hands of people who have been laid off or temporarily had their work suspended, both in order to allow them to sustain themselves and also in order to help you know, prime the pump of the economy. And then he's also worked very hard to rebuild our alliances and to be a good friend again to our friends and to warn our adversaries that we can be a very challenging enemy if they choose to be adversaries. So I think we've made a lot of progress in 100 days, but of course, uh, there's a lot more work to be done. It's, it's interesting uh, mentioning about the sort of vaccination rollout, which um, seems to have been very successful in the United States of America. It's probably one of the best in the world um, with so many uh, COVID shots that are happening across the country. Um, do you see that as more of a state success rather than a federal one? Um, and how much credit can we give to Biden on that? Well, it's been mixed. I mean, at the federal level, obviously the approval of the vaccines and creating mechanisms to get them to the states for distribution has been you know, an important federal responsibility. 
the actual process of managing appointments for vaccines and setting the priorities has been more of a state responsibility. What's important is there has to be coordination. What we did not have at the beginning of the pandemic with the Trump administration was any effort to coordinate with the states. So it was disorder. Now we have a relatively good degree of cooperation in almost every case. So we can move the vaccines to where they're most needed and most implemented in a way that makes it easier for the states to manage the process. I mean, it's good to get that understanding of the, the vaccination program because naturally it's, it's so different uh, country to country, in, including ours. Um, another thing you touched on earlier was the sort of economy. Um, it's clear to see there's been some really strong figures that, that have come out of the States. Um, I saw that the stock market uh, rose to its highest position since 1945. Um, the S&P index has been up by uh, 9% since its ignore, ignoration day. The average is normally around 3.8% for the first 100 days of a, of a, of a president. Um, again, a similar sort of question to last, you know, what, what kind of effect has Joe Biden had on the economy? And why do you think um, we're seeing the stock market rise so significantly? Well, I, I don't dare to explain why the stock market goes up and down. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I have to scratch my head. I don't really understand it. I mean, a lot of it has to do with people attempting to project what they think the economy will be like in the next six months or a year. And so as we begin to see emergence from the pandemic, and as we see a discussion about a significant investment in infrastructure, I think that investors believe we see, again, a, a brightening horizon in terms of the economy. And as is typical with the stock market, they try to anticipate that by investing now. So I, I don't think that's unrealistic, but I think there's going to be some time lag between the stock market rise and some of the macroeconomic effects of what's going on. But assuming Congress passes an infrastructure bill, um, investing in some of the critical infrastructure will not only create jobs and economic activity, but actually it'll help sustain some of the capital improvements we need in order to be able to continue to have a, a healthy economy. I think continuing on, on the economy, we've seen, um amazing figures in terms of the amount of people uh, getting into jobs, uh, unemployment falling. Um, I, I know unemployment was uh, at its highest uh, at one point during the sort of Trump administration since the 1930s. Um, and it, it's clear to see that there's, you know, COVID-19, uh, the, the vaccination programs obviously had a, a very positive impact on that. What are some of the economic policies that you're seeing from Joe Biden in America, because there was a real concern, uh, maybe it, possibly in the States, but in, in the UK and other sort of Western countries that we're going to see uh, more of a sort of shift towards the left, um, or if you like, the, the far left. Um, is that something you're seeing currently with the Biden administration, or is that, are we seeing a more of a sort of moderate um, centrist, as well, I think the way to describe for Biden? Well, I think partly it depends what you mean by the left. Um, clearly, there's been a lot more willingness to spend and run up a deficit, although, to be honest, under the prior Republican administration, the deficit didn't seem to matter very much either. So to the extent that, that moving to the left means spending money, not worrying about balancing the budget, 
um, and doing some redistribution, I think there has been a, a moderate move to the left, not, not an extreme view. I think some of the things like discussions of forgiving student debt, creating a basic stipend for children um, and other proposals like that, again, are kind of a moderate social democratic movement, but nothing particularly radical. Now, obviously this has to be paid for. And so there has been some discussion of raising taxes, although the rates we're talking about would be rates that we historically have dealt with in the US. So again, it's not gonna be uh, confiscatory. So I would describe you know, Joe Biden as a um, moderate centrist left, um, <clears throat> obviously more to the left than the typical Republican would be, but certainly not the kind of Bernie Sanders, uh, very liberal left-wing Democrat that I think some people you know, were worrying about during the election. And I think he will steer a course of being, attempting to have some you know, modest redistribution, working to sustain families, and particularly those who've had um, economic hardship because of the virus, but not looking to stultify the engine of growth, which is you know, business and, and the investment of capital. We saw um, a study recently showing that two thirds of Americans support Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, um, you know, with, with his infrastructure and family plans being um, fairly popular, it seems, and seems to have quite broad backing. Um, it would be the, the, six, the six trillion overall price tag for all of this would make it the largest um, expansion of the federal government since um, I think Johnson's Great Society program. Um, it's interesting he hasn't gone down um, a similar approach to what we saw Bill Clinton and Barack Obama um, talk about in terms of the universal health care. I think he's picked a lot of uh, array of sort of interesting initiatives such as preschool, public community colleges, paid family and medical leave, home and infrastructure repairs. How important is infrastructure in the US in terms of the requirement in investment? We're seeing a lot of, um, if like a, it's something that we tend to associate, if you like, more with developing countries. Um, is infrastructure, do you think that that's a good move from Biden to be having that sort of focus? I think, I think it's critical. I think we've neglected maintaining and investing in infrastructure over time. One great example is broadband. There are still parts of the country which are underserved with broadband. As we learned in the pandemic, uh, there's an enormous need to have the ability to connect over the internet in order to do uh, business or engage in social activities. And that depends upon having an infrastructure that sustains that connectivity. In fact, one of the issues we've dealt with over the last year are the number of times that it looks like our internet infrastructure is overwhelmed and then people start to freeze up or they, they lose connectivity. So building 21st century infrastructure, as well as making sure we repair you know, our highways and, and airports and things like that, um, I think is very important to continue economic development. And um, in that sense, I think, you know, whether you are a business person or a social welfare worker, you can see the value of, of maintaining and upgrading our infrastructure. Now, one area I have to say in particular, I think the Biden administration is being attentive to, is looking at that critical infrastructure where we don't have a lot of American or Western suppliers, and therefore we are relying a lot on China. 
And that creates a big supply chain issue, which um, for a long time, we didn't pay much attention to. We were, you know, people basically took the attitude of business wants to buy, you know, chips and raw material from China, so be it. But we realized in wake of the pandemic and also watching Xi Jinping over the last few years, that allowing the Chinese to dominate critical infrastructure supplies and the supply chain puts us at national security risk. So I think part of what we're going to see with the Biden administration in cooperation with our uh, friends and allies in Europe and in other democratic countries is working collaboratively to build free market alternatives for the supply chain so we're not held hostage by Xi Jinping. I think raising China's a uh, 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 fantastic point and something that I'm sure we can uh, dig quite deep into. Um, how do you see that relationship under the, the Biden administration and um, President Xi developing in, in the coming months and years? And what have you seen in the first hundred days um, to sort of support that kind of reasoning? Well, I think in this instance, there'll be maybe a little less change with the new administration as compared to the old one, because the Trump administration also acknowledged, although somewhat intermittently, that China was a geopolitical strategic rival of the U.S., and that we needed to become uh, more sensitive to the variety of ways in which China attempts to outcompete us and to muscle us out of the global environment. You know, traditionally, Americans view geopolitical rivalry as largely a military issue. China has viewed it as an economic issue, a trade issue, a foreign aid issue, all of which China uses as levers to gain power and influence over other countries, particularly in the so-called developing world. And in that sense, I used to say, we were playing checkers and the Chinese were playing go. We were just not in the same game. So the, the Trump administration began to realize we needed to at least pay attention to these other areas. Although I think that it was a little bit intermittent and, and sporadic in how they actually executed on that. But in the 100 days President Biden's been in office, first he's been forthright in describing what China's doing to the Uyghurs as a genocide, which I believe to be true. Um, and he's in, insisted that he's gonna to continue to pay attention to the national security dimensions of the supply chain and other critical economic uh, factors. But at the same time, he's willing to go and talk to the Chinese about matters of mutual interest. Like for example, climate change, where we are all gonna work cooperatively or we're all gonna wind up suffering individually. So I think, you know, what you're seeing with the Biden administration, he's got some very experienced advisors as it relates to China, is a strategic approach that identifies areas of competition that we have to be prepared to execute on, and also realizes there'll be some areas of cooperation, and we should be willing to engage in those as well. On that, do you see a shift uh, with Biden um, and generally, America moving. If you, you know, like, like you said, I think there's other countries such as Russia that have almost been the, um, you know, when, when you think of rivals to the United States of America, that the first country tends to be Russia that comes to our minds. 
Um, do you think there's a shift happening under the Biden administration where we're seeing um, maybe China as, as the sort of new uh, strategic rival? I think people who've been looking at the geopolitical landscape for the last several years um, <clears throat> would agree with me and saying that in, since, let's say, you know, the beginning of the last decade, China has been the more formidable rival from a strategic standpoint. In the short term, Russia can be more disruptive. And certainly what they've done in Ukraine and Crimea um, and with cyber attacks indicates a potential to disrupt, which is disturbing. But there's no long game there. Uh, the Russian economy is totally dependent upon commodity prices. People aren't clamoring to buy Russian products and technology all over the world, except for maybe vodka. Um, and in the long time, the demographics in the long run are not helping Russia compete. China is a much more formidable competitor because they've got a, a, a burgeoning economy. They are building an alternative or trying to build an alternative financial architecture uh, that would compete with the US. Um, increasingly, they are developing real intellectual property uh, they've got private enterprises that are globally competitive, which they do subsidize, like Huawei. Um, and they're using all of these elements in a coordinated way to leverage around the world, including in a way, frankly, that is, I could describe as bullying other countries and other companies. But what that means is that in the long run, they actually are a rival that could supplant or at least sideline side the United States if we don't get our game together with our allies. So how do you think the, the Biden administration should combat uh, the, the sort of the, the Chinese threat? And um, almost a sort of uh, opinion question, do you, do you think Biden has the, the right, um, maybe the, the, the characteristics, the, the profile to sort of deal with, with, with China? I definitely do. I mean, I mean, obviously, Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many years. He's watched this for a long time. Um, I will tell you that before he decided to run for president, um, I actually was a member of a transatlantic commission on election integrity with Joe Biden and Anders Rasmussen, who was the former uh, prime minister of Denmark and, and other uh, people from Europe and the US. And I know from discussions, that he was very conscious of China as a rival. Um, so I do think he has the background and the understanding and the determination um, to really come up with a strategic response to this. Some of which I've already described, which is the fact that we are now committed to making investments in critical infrastructure in the area of the internet, like chips, in order to be at, have an alternative source of supply to what we were getting out of China. I think also there'll be a greater emphasis on foreign aid and assistance to countries in the Southern hemisphere. So they don't have to simply turn to China if they're looking for some kind of economic support or investment. And that's important because when the Chinese invest, there's always a hidden price. And the price is if you don't play ball according to the way they want to, they wind up pulling the investment or curtailing it. We need to have an alternative. And when the US has done that, 
it's actually worked well to build goodwill. And we can do that with our allies in, in, in the UK and in Europe as well. And that I think is gonna be part of what they discuss at the G7 when they meet in, in the UK in the next uh, month or so. China's such a big talking point on, on our platform. Um, it's regularly discussed by a number of UK politicians we, we have on here, and as well as, as well as a number of Commonwealth and uh, American figures we have on too. And I think that the sort of common um, uh, thing that all, it seems everyone is saying, is almost diversifying portfolios away from China, maybe reducing that necessary reliance that we have on, on China currently. I think the global pandemic did show that. Um, just how reliant in the UK, for example, we, we are on uh, on China. And it, it's interesting because I suppose with the United States of America and UK to a certain extent, we probably have economies where we can kind of deal with being, you know, slightly hostile towards the, the, the CCP, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but my question was sort of for some of the, uh, let's say, countries with not so bigger um, economies, who know that if they decide to be slightly hostile towards China or that they uh, become, um, you know, they start to disagree on some of the, the treatments or some of the things that they're doing, um, that there is a very likely effect that, that can affect their economy. Do, do you see that as something the United States of America and UK can help with? Um, in particular, the sort of so Southeast region of Asia? Yeah, I do think so. I think that we can work together, again, I said, not just the US, but with our, uh, all of our like-minded allies. There's a, a statute or a law that was passed recently called ARIA, uh, Asia Reconstruction or Investment Act, I think is what it stands for, which was designed to incentivize investment of US companies with the support of the US government in economic activities in Southeast Asia in order to create an alternative so that countries like Vietnam and Cambodia don't feel the only game in town is the Chinese game. And I can tell you, having been in Cambodia, the Chinese have an enormous amount of influence, which they gain through their economic leverage in Cambodia. Now, look, if a country wants to accommodate to the Chinese, I mean, it's, you know, we're not gonna stop them, but it should be a choice, not a compulsion. And I think for those countries where our investment can give them an alternative, I think it will give them the ability to distance themselves on particular issues from what the Chinese may want to insist upon. I think you know, China, we, we can probably discuss in, in quite some detail. Um, another uh, sort of uh, foreign country I think was worth discussing is Russia. I know we, we've slightly touched on, on them already. Um, it's going to clearly be a very testing and um, interesting next four years in terms of the, the US and Russian relationship. How do you see Joe Biden dealing with that relationship? And what what some of the things that you, you're seeing from him currently that um, uh, give you your, your sort of your thoughts? Well, I think he's I think Joe Biden will be tougher on Russia than Trump was. First of all, he's not going to one all over Vladimir Putin uh, like a lovesick calf. Um, he's going to be, I think, much more blunt in assessing Putin and Putin's behavior. <clears throat> and there's no doubt Putin's going to test. He's tested a little bit in, in Ukraine. Uh, I, I wouldn't say Navalny was a test. I think it was done for other reasons, but it certainly winds up 
uh, being another test. Uh, we now learned that in 2014, apparently, Russia was involved in blowing up an arsenal in the Czech Republic. Um, so I do think um, it's going to be a period of time when resolution and toughness in the face of, in the face of Russian provocation is going to be very important. One of the things we've done is we've imposed some additional sanctions based upon the, China, the Russian hacking in what we call the solar winds uh, hack, which obviously created uh, vulnerabilities in many, many target institutions that had uploaded solar wind software that had been penetrated by the Russians. And what the Russians have been engaged in for over a decade now is what we call hybrid warfare. It's not the typical thing you think about like an invasion with tanks and missiles, but it is masquerading as indigenous protesters, uh, playing games with cyberspace, disinformation activities, attempting <clears throat> to manipulate elections, all of which the Russians have done, targeting not only Europe, but the United States as well. And I think that this is an area where you're going to have to see, again, steady uh, firmness in the face of Russian provocation. Now, again, I think, <coughs> excuse me, that President Biden is supposed to be meeting President Putin uh, after the G7 this summer. And again, that may identify some areas we can diffuse tension, but not at the risk of uh, not being firm on things we care about. Uh, Russia is another talking point we could probably discuss in quite some detail. Um, I, I wanted to move to Afghanistan. Um, we're seeing um, Biden uh, making the pledge of that he will remove all troops from um, Afghanistan. Um, it, it, looking in, in um, I, I suppose, having part of the, the Bush administration, do you think that, that that's a good move to, to be doing that now? Well, I think this is, a, uh, as they say sometimes, a wicked problem. I understand very much that as we hit almost 20 years of conflict this fall, you have to ask, when does it end? You know, how long do we get troops there? On the other hand, what you do has to be defined by the actual facts on the ground. The facts are the Taliban are still there. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I don't think there's any doubt they will take the opportunity, if they can, to regain power. Um, and then the question will be a couple of things. First of all, will they reestablish a platform for terrorist attacks against the U.S.? Um, and second, what will they do to the people who cooperated with the West during the last 20 years and also to all the female uh, uh, members of the population who've been allowed to go to school and now are they going to be repressed and punished by the Taliban who are going to want to revert to a fundamentalist religious doctrine. So I think, you know, if we're going to withdraw, it doesn't, we may take our troops off the ground, but I don't think we can withdraw our attention and our efforts. And I'd say in particular, we have to have the capability if they reconstitute a platform for terrorism to use all the weapons at our disposal to take out those terrorists, 
we cannot go back to the days of training camps and laboratories experimenting with chemical weapons and planning uh, exercises against the US. We cannot return to that. You've actually uh, answered one of the, the next questions I was going to ask about, which was about um, women in Afghanistan, because one of the things I think uh, maybe um, the, the Bush administration and further administrations um, in, in the US maybe don't get credit for is how well and um, how much work you, you've done for women's rights in, in Afghanistan. And it seems like there is a real threat and worry now that as soon as the troops on the ground do leave Afghanistan, that that could also, um, uh, that, that, that could start to go downhill again. Um, and it, it kind of leads me on to um, the next part of Afghanistan. By leaving troops, do you think it potentially opens up the, the possibility of almost a um, Afghanistan being exploited by rival countries around them? You know, we, we've seen in the past, I think, you know, Pakistan have had quite good collaboration, I, I believe, with, with the Taliban. And there's, there's India who are quite against it. And, you know, the Russian influence has been there in the past. Does that... Um, worry you a little bit with, with the removal of, of troops that we could start to see almost Afghanistan being used as almost like a political ploy between a number of neighboring countries around? I think that's a very, I think it's a very realistic concern. I mean, you know, Afghanistan has a misfortune to be bordered by three difficult neighbors, Pakistan, India, and Iran. And they each have their own agenda. And then I know the Iranians, will be, I'm sorry, the Indians will be in particular very mindful of whether Afghanistan will become a platform for Pakistan to try to exert pressure on India. So I do think you could wind up seeing certainly political and economic pressure and maybe even some military activity <clears throat> emanating from those three neighbors. And, um, you know, that's one of the issues which frankly the Taliban will have to think about, whether they're gonna provoke a response that they may not wanna provoke. So this is gonna be, is very much a tinderbox and I think will remain that way for the foreseeable future. I think this is a, a good point to raise because you, you obviously actually have experience in this. Does the Taliban and Al Qaeda, are, are they prepared to work together? Have you seen signs of them uh, doing work together? Because I think one of the things the uh, you know one of the things uh, we've seen previous administrations say is that they would be happy to leave Afghanistan and you know they wanted to almost like a working coalition before um, that they, they left the country. Is that a re realistically possible? Um, and B, ha have you seen a source of you know positive signs that this is a country that can almost uh, govern themselves in in a safe manner? Well, I think, you know, we've had government in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. It's been not exactly a model government. There's been a fair amount of corruption and mismanagement. And that also, by the way, creates a little bit of an opening for the Taliban. But the Taliban also has to be mindful that it's got to satisfy its population or they're going to face indigenous rebellions, um, as actually was the case prior to 2001. So, I mean, there's going to be a, a self-interest here, which works to some extent as a restraint. Now, Al-Qaeda was hosted by the Taliban prior to 2001. At this point, the big questions are these. Will the Taliban decide it's not worth the price and basically not have the Al-Qaeda back? 
is Al Qaeda what it was, or has it been supplanted now by ISIS and other groups? I think in the latter case, what we've now seen is the ideology of extreme global jihadism is no longer dominated by one brand or one organization, but it's actually something that's now migrated into a lot of different places. So there may be a version of it um, that grows up again in Afghanistan, but there also may be versions in Africa um, and versions in, in other parts of, of the Middle East and North Africa. So I'm, I don't think it's going to be as binary in Afghanistan as it is as it was prior to 2001. But again, it'll be up to the new government, if in fact there is a new government, to juggle all these different interest groups. I think moving from Afghanistan to uh, a more uh, closer country to home for America would be Mexico. Um, and, and not just Mexico, um, a number of, sort of uh, nearby countries for the United States of America. We're seeing a, a surge in uh, illegal immigration. Um, I think in, in January it was 78,000, uh, over 100,000 in February. And in March we saw 172,000 um, illegal immigrants come into United States of America, which is the highest it's been in uh, quite some time. How do you think Joe Biden has fared with illegal immigration? And do you think his measures um, that he's adopting or planning to adopt will be good enough? You know, I think Joe Biden was left with a big mess. Uh, the big mess was that the Trump administration felt the way to deal with um, migration was to be cruel and nasty in the hope that that would discourage people from coming. All that did is it separated children from their parents and created a human rights crisis. So, you know, the Biden administration is trying to juggle two things. They're trying to send the message, it's not open borders, don't come and think that you're automatically gonna stay, but also to say, in enforcing the law, we're gonna do it in a humane way. I think, but, the Biden administration would like to come up with comprehensive that forces the rules, but also creates an expanded way for people to get entry into the U.S. Uh, for humanitarian reasons, um, or for example, for people who've been living here undocumented for many years to be able to get their status regularized and maybe have a pathway to citizenship. And then ultimately to deal with the problems in countries in Central America and South America that are driving so many people to leave their homes and take the risky trip to try to get to the US. And I think only with a comprehensive approach like that, which I do think the Biden administration has signed, is there a hope to finally get this challenge under control? I, I think it's an, it's an interesting point you've made. I think um, I think naturally, from you could argue from the previous administration, their rhetoric compared to this uh, rhetoric, I think there's probably always going to be some um, small or large surge. Um, I, I want to move on to something um, that I, I know that um, you, you discussed actually on our, on our last platform um, and it's something that our listeners will definitely enjoy um, listening, uh, listening from you about, which is the general state of democracy. Um, 
Now, I think it's safe to say it's been a sort of testing period for uh, democratic countries across the, the globe. Um, I'm going to start with Joe Biden. What do you think Joe Biden, uh, now being the president of United States of America, does for democracy? And do you think in some ways he will protect it maybe better than his predecessor? I, I can tell you with absolute certainty that Joe Biden will be much more committed to democracy, which includes the rule of law and all the norms that go along with the democratic government, much more committed to this than his predecessor was. As I said, before he decided to run for president, he and I and Anders Rasmussen and a couple of dozen other people, uh, former senior government officials, were part of the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity. And I know he's talked about convening a summit of democracies and really believes that investing in our democratic rule of law is critical, a critical part of our national security like, like anything else is. The problem with Trump was Trump sent the message that the rule of law and integrity didn't matter. And it was just about winning and getting what you want. And that, I think, sent a very bad message to the rest of the world. And to be blunt, a bad message inside the United States. And I think like many Americans, I was absolutely shocked when in the wake of an election that was, to my mind, impeccably conducted. Uh, with a massive voter turnout that Trump and his allies continued to perpetrate the obvious lie that somehow the election had been stolen, which culminated in an insurrection on January 6th. So I think there's a lot of repair work to be done in the U.S. and around the world. And around the world, democracy is not doing that well. I'm chairman of the Board of Freedom House, which does an annual report on freedom in the world. And it's been quite a bit lower the last couple of years than was the case previously. So we need to rebuild it by reestablishing our commitment to the norms of the rule of law, our respect for getting the people to vote and not trying to exclude them or, or, or game the system. And Again, foster free speech, but not speech that incites violence or insurrection. I do think this is going to be a very big priority for the current administration. And I think it's got to be a priority for our allies in Europe, too. I mean, I'm, I'm sad to say, if you look at Hungary, uh, that's not a triumph for democracy. In Germany now, we see a resurgence of, resurgence of Nazis, uh, which is unthinkable, would have been unthinkable years ago. I still think these are minority elements, but if you don't mobilize people and to defend our democratic values, you concede by default. Why do you think there has been this decline in democracy? I mean, there's been many arguments that it started before Trump. Um, you know, we've had people often here talk about almost how uh, the speed of liberalization some people have cited. I mean, there's so many different things people have said. Well, why, why do you think this the, the democracy has kind of fallen off a little bit? Candidly, I think there was a sense that in many ways, democratic governments were not working well. We had a couple of economic crises, which I think shook people's um, at, you know, um, confidence in capitalism. Um, there, ha there have been instances of 
corruption and self-dealing, which I think made people feel cynical. Um, to be honest, I think the internet, far, you know, although it was originally conceived as a great vehicle for democratic uh, people to kind of get together and communicate online, it also created an opportunity for people of a different political persuasion also to mobilize. To be candid, I think the Russians and other adversary nations have exploited the internet to propagate falsehoods and undercut truth. And maybe I'd boil it down to this. Democracy requires trust as the critical lubricant. If we don't trust our government, if we don't trust that there are such things as facts, if we don't trust that there's a thing as science, then it's very hard to have democracy. It becomes power politics and not rule of law. So we have, have got to rebuild trust from the ground up in the way our leaders conduct themselves, in having uh, institutions of all kinds, public and private, be trustworthy, in educating our young people about the importance of trust and what truth is. And this is not a, a one-week process. This is going to require the kind of investment of time and effort and leadership, which is sustained over a period of time. I think one of my, my favorite quotes I've heard in, in recent years was from um, former American President Bill Clinton. Um, and I've said this a few times on our, on our platform in the past, which was you know, he feels that society is less racist, less homophobic, less um, xenophobic, less sexist than it's ever been before. But people no longer can be in rooms with people who think differently to them. He, I think he's alluding to social media, uh, us almost being stuck in our sort of echo chambers. And, um, you know, I, I can now essentially go onto Twitter and just follow everyone that thinks the same as me. And so if I meet someone who thinks different to me, to me I, you know, I, you know, I feel very different as opposed to maybe going back 20, 30 years where you almost forced to have conversations with people who think a bit differently to you. Um, and this brings me back to Joe Biden, actually. Um, one of the things we, we've seen a review, I think, done by CNN, which was one of the favorite things that people like about the, the Biden administration. Um, and, I, and I have to say in the UK, and I think a, a lot of countries would agree with, was the, the, the calmness, um, the, the, the lack of noise. It was the, the calmness is really uh, refreshing. It's, it's settling. Um, I think a lot of democracy or a lot of just generally countries it just seems like it's been a yelling match for the last few years um is that something you you would agree with that in, in sense of seeing that, that overall calmness i strongly agree with that and i think one of the things which is one of the reasons biden was successful in the campaign um is he fundamentally respects people of different viewpoints <clears throat> i think one of the things that trump exploited was the sense that people in certain parts of the country had that the elites on the coast were disdainful of them and thought they were hicks and not worth listening to. And that snobbism, snobbism really wound up, I think, being uh, something that angered, motivated people in some parts of the country to vote for Trump. You know, Biden used to always remind people in the campaign, he grew up in Scranton, which is a working class uh, city in Northeast Pennsylvania. And that he was someone who felt very comfortable with lower middle class and working class people because he grew up in that environment. And that sense of respecting people from different walks of life and different viewpoints, which he also had during his years in the Senate, 
I think is refreshing to most people and opens the door to exactly what you said, that we learn to coexist, deal with, do business with, and be friendly with people, even when they have different opinions, because we look at people as, as a whole individual and not merely as a Twitter feed or a Facebook posting. Do you think some of Biden's challenges may come within his own party? So th there's a big thing in, in the UK. Uh, I, I slightly touched on it earlier where, you know, we're seeing uh, in our country um, that there's no doubt there's, there's, there seems to be, you know, larger polarizations both on the far right, far left. Do you think some of Biden's challenges may come within his own party? Because there does seem to be, uh, unlike maybe the, the Clinton and George Bush era, where I think there was a sense of more, if you like, moderates or more people willing to listen to each other. Do, do you some maybe sometimes feel that with the Democratic Party that there some members maybe going closer towards the the left far left uh, could potentially cause problems for him? I think both parties um, have extremes that have gotten more vocal and more influential. Although I still think the majority of people in the in the U.S are more in the center, but partly because of the internet, partly because of the regular media, the more, the louder, more extreme voices get amplified and get more attention paid to them. And if I can be a little critical of the mass media, you know, they thrive on having big audience viewers so they can charge more for advertising. And the way they drive viewing is by amplifying you know, the kind of hysterical level of discussion because that gets people emotional. That being said, yes, there's a hard left part of the Democratic Party, particularly one that is not um, you know, particularly friendly to free speech and wants to impose a very rigid set of speech codes. On the right, you have a group that's also very, very hard over, for example, those that are now attacking Lynn Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney, because she acknowledges that Trump lost the election and they don't want to admit it. So it's going to take a while to mobilize the center in both parties in order to counteract this uh, centripetal force that's pulling both sides to the extremes. I want to go back to, I, I know we're mainly talking about Joe Biden today, but I, I want to take you back to the sort of Clinton and George Bush era because, you know, you. you served a bit in both and I have great knowledge on both um, th there seems to be on the outside and uh, looking that that was a, a different era in terms of a lot more bipartisanship um, it seems like there were moments where both presidents had friendships that crossed uh, party lines um, that doesn't seem to, to be the case as much now I, I wonder what was your experience like seeing um, Republicans working with Democrats Democrats working Republicans um, and how do you think we can start to see that potentially again in the future? Well, I, I myself, when I was in government, worked with both sides and um, found it very useful and had, you know, when I was a Republican appointee, I had Democrats, I had very good relations with whom I trusted, who trusted me as well as Republicans. Um, it's gotten hard lately because there have been loyalty tests imposed by activists in both parties. And again, you know, partly with social media, partly with regular media, they're quick to criticize 
or call out as a betrayal someone in their own party that wants to compromise. Some of this, I have to say, has been partly due to the rise of political consultants who became very good at advising candidates on how even the use of individual words could become polarizing and could be weaponized for campaign purposes. And so what that did is it made everybody focused on almost a perpetual campaign as opposed to coming into office and then actually trying to accomplish something. In fact, it became a political strategy to prevent things from being accomplished because that way you could try to discredit your opponents. And to me, the sad thing is this. You know, I, I spent about half of my professional career in public service. And I did it because I really wanted to see things happen and see things get better. And I thought that was true of most people who ran for office. And now I see more and more people who simply want to run in order to win so they can run again in order to win. And I feel like saying, why do you want to do it? It's not like the pay is that great. You've got to either want to accomplish something or it's just an ego trip. I think this kind of leads well on to executive orders. Um, now, again, the, the Clinton and, and Bush era, uh, in comparison to the last three administrations, were relatively low in terms of how much they um, used their executive orders. We have seen a rise with both Obama, uh, President Obama and President Trump, and we, we've seen a um, record from Joe Biden in terms of his heavy use of executive orders. These are more than the previous 10 presidents did in their first 100 days. Um, now, there's obviously, I'm sure there's fantastic arguments for and against, and it'd be great to hear your perspective on that, because I think on the UK, when whenever we, it's always highlighted how many executive orders uh, each president does, and it's always almost a concern for democracy, if you like. Um, so is part of that just the general polarisation of America, where this is, things just aren't getting done, so we have to use more executive orders, or is there a bit of um, a lack of work from presidents to try and build that bipartisan relationship? Well, I think, and I think Joe Biden wants to try to build up a partisan relationship, but to be honest, a lot of it is to, to be laid at the feet of Congress. Congress has really become almost non-functional. It's rare for them to actually pass a budget in a timely way. Um, legislation, you know, absent an emergency legislation to deal with a complicated set of issues are almost impossible to get out. So what happens is presidents get frustrated and they figure either we do something, you know, push the limit of executive orders or nothing gets done. And I think in many ways, one of the great failings in the last decade or so has been congressional abdication of its responsibility to pass legislation and to oversee the federal government. And that's gotta be rebuilt. Because again, a lot of what happened is the political consultants told their candidates, if you simply stop the other side from doing things, then you're going to win again. And I keep scratching my head and saying, what's the point of winning if you can't do anything? How, what kind of changes would you like to be uh, seen in Congress? You know, we're going through um, a sort of interesting phase right now, so probably not as uh, we're probably not as critical with the House of Lords that we have in, in this country, but th there is constant talk of reforms and changes there. What, what kind of stuff would you like to see changed in Congress? Do you think it's just a personality that you know the current 
profile of people in Congress, or do you think there actually needs to be a sort of systemic change? I think there are a couple of things that need to change systemically. I'm not an expert in Congress. <clears throat> One is we do need to get back to what I call regular order. In the old days, you know, things had to go through committees. The committee chairman then, you know, presented them to the Congress. They were voted upon. Over time in the House and certainly in the Senate, the ability to decide what is on the agenda to be voted has increasingly been concentrated in the hands of the leader so that <clears throat> the ability to get something on the agenda for a vote is now curtailed. And again, that's done for political reasons because if it doesn't come up for a vote, then your vote can't be held against you in the political campaign. But the problem with that is it means many proposals never get a fair chance to win or lose because they never even get on the table. And I'll give you one great example. Um, in the last period of the Obama administration, um, when Mer Merrick Garland was going to be nominated, was nominated to be a Supreme Court justice, the uh, head of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, refused to even have a hearing. He basically ran the clock on a whole year because he didn't want to create an opportunity for people to vote up or down because he was afraid they would vote to approve. And that's gamesmanship. And that really undermines the credibility of Congress. Now, good news for Merrick Garland in the country is he's now attorney general. But I do think that maneuver really stuck in people's craws, in their throats, as an example of abusing the power of a leader to set the agenda. I think um, it, it's something that we're probably going to watch uh, quite a, a intensely, sort of the Congress battles. Um, I suppose a good way to end would be uh, a very quick, if you like, rating, if it's possible, out of 10 for Joe Biden's first 100 days. And and finally, what you envisage the next four years of a Joe Biden administration looking like for America. Well, I, look, I think I think Joe Biden, you know, you should get an A for what he's done so far, but 100 days is just a start. Um, I do think a big issue is going to be what happens in the midterms uh, with Congress. If Congress changes, you know, hands and the Republicans wind up winning one of the houses, <clears throat> that's obviously going to have a real effect on what Biden can do. I do think in the area of foreign policy and national security, where he has the most discretion, we are going to see a, a rebuilding of the bonds of alliance between the U.S. and our allies in NATO and in other free countries both in terms of classic military support, but more broadly in terms of fostering the values of democracy and the rule of law and freedom. And also working together on cybersecurity. Um, and I think we're gonna see in dealing with China and Russia, um, willingness to be tough and firm where it's necessary, but recognizing in those areas where we can reach a, a, a common goal, we should be willing to be cooperative. Well, thank you for your time to say, Michael. It's been fantastic hearing from you, as as always. Um, thank you to our uh, listeners who will hopefully enjoy this podcast. We have a whole series on 100 Days of, of Joe Biden uh, with Michael Shertoff, uh, Robert Zulik, and General Robert Spaulding all coming up. So um, I hope you've enjoyed today's uh, listing session, and hopefully we can hear from you all soon. Great. Thank you. Be well, everybody.